welcome back or if it's your first time welcome to fear and other feelings episode number five i guess that had to happen sometime i'm a day late here i'm not in new york i'm in arizona uh with savannah and her fam but yeah we're here i don't know how disjointed this is gonna be but if you've been listening i think uh you're vibing with me so let's just uh let's just get this started so i was thinking about the virus and about tragedies throughout history um and it's it's crazy to me how much optics determine what we see as tragic and what we don't on 9-11 about 4,000 people died and i think that's seen by most people who live here as the worst tragedy they remember witnessing either in real life or on the news almost 20 years on every year on that day we still think about it and remember it and in in new york city itself the cops all dress up a little extra and make sort of a display out of it and obviously there's nothing wrong with that especially if you knew people who died that day or were a first responder or anything like that 4000 people died and it feels tragic 20 years later but this year in 2020 we've had 250,000 people die in America from the virus and I'm sure that number will get close to 300,000 if not higher but for the sake of talking about it let's assume that it was exactly 250,000 and no more let's assume it was exactly 250,000 my calculator here tells me that that's 62 times as many deaths as 9-11 if we had 9-11 62 times it would match the death toll of the virus And thousands of the same people who take a moment of silence on 9-11 and lament Islamic terrorists were in the streets protesting the government orders to wear a mask. I don't need to tell you how ridiculous that is since you know already, but the point is that what resonates with people is not the amount of suffering or the amount of loss or the amount of horror at hospitals. It's the way that the information has been packaged before reaching them. The optics of 9-11 are about as provocative as any terrorist could dream of. We don't think about the 4,000 families and their trauma before we think about what's probably the most surreal image we've ever seen of the towers getting hit and falling down. Even picturing it right now for like the thousandth time um, is affecting me a little bit. And I have no nationalistic pride, really. Uh, I don't know anyone who died that day. I don't know any police or firemen. I didn't have to watch the city rebuild. And even from a distance, it continues to be affecting because of the optics. If Al-Qaeda smuggled in some kind of chemical weapon that gradually killed 4,000 people and never crashed planes into anything, you think we'd have this weird feeling on that day every year? Honestly, I don't really think so. When's the last time you thought about the earthquake and the tsunami on December 26, 2004 in Indonesia that killed 227,000 people in like a day or two? I bet it's been a while, or maybe you were so young that this is the first time you're hearing about it. On December 26th, we don't don't do anything about that. We don't feel anything about that. Giant waves in a country that most people here don't know about are not as visually or culturally compelling as, you know, what people think of as the greatest building. The greatest buildings in the world's greatest city suddenly being set on fire and then collapsing. Even though something like the tsunami or something like the coronavirus was 50 times more deadly. 
the way that this happened gives it more weight to many of us. And I'm sure the coverage of 9-11 memorials this year on American news media probably surpassed the total coverage of the tsunami 15, 16 years ago. I think we either forget or we don't learn that this kind of thing is just nationalism at the end of the day. If you think of yourself as someone who's more interested in actual human lives lost than political symbolism, then you should ask yourself if something like 9-11 has a reasonable or a disproportionate effect on your emotions. Is the feeling your natural emotional response or do you feel like you've been socially pressured by the media and the government to have a specific reaction? I think for me, it's mostly the first one, but that's after trying to separate the two first and deciding for myself that I had to unlearn the fake parts of it that more than anything else, improve, improve the bottom line of defense contractors who make tanks and fighter jets. I'm not interested in furthering the cause of defense contractors on its own. Of course, the military to a large extent is what's given me the freedom to even have feelings like this. So I'm not some idealist anti-military hippie. I'm just saying, if you look at the, uh, the profit and loss statements of uh, Lockheed Martin or any uh, Northrop Grumman or any defense contractor you want to pick, they're doing great. In 2005, Lockheed Martin had a revenue of $37 billion. Cut to 14 years later, 2019, they had a revenue of $59 billion. And their share price in those 14 years has gone from $42 a share to $390 a share. It's about 10 times higher. War and fear are their incentives. War and fear make them more money than peace and calm. So for me, I feel like the solution is to remember that the most significant achievement of the initial emotional response to 9-11 was the spending of a few trillion dollars in American taxpayer money on what's about to be a two-decade deployment of the military, which seems to have resulted in the execution of one figurehead 10 years after the fact and is a still unresolved power vacuum in the region, if not more than one. The emotional response of 9-11 is the catalyst for these things, for the wars, for the insane spending, for the insane national debt, the disproportionate fear of many Americans towards Muslims and Islam itself, the absolutely ridiculous legislative overreach with things like the so-called Patriot Act. If you don't know about the Patriot Act, hit up uh, Wikipedia real quick, type in Patriot Act, and you will find some very disturbing things in there, if I had to guess. And by capitalizing on the emotions of the public, things like the Patriot Act became the perfect tool for the government to secretly or at least silently infringe upon, if not completely remove, many of our once upon a time rights, like not having, all, not having our phone calls listened to and monitored all the time. Uh, Edward Snowden and Julian Assange turned things like that from a conspiracy th theory to a horrific realization that our worst fears about those at the top were true and even more than true. The emotional response to 9-11 is what made the American public so happy to support the invasion of Iraq without almost any of it asking whether or not there was verification of the claims that there were the now uh, infamous quote-unquote weapons of mass destruction. We were emotional. Someone said there was something. And that was all the excuse we needed to storm the gates. I was listening to the JREE podcast and they were talking about how it's silly to think that anything is going to meaningfully 
change in American politics because of the Biden-Harris presidency. And then that got me thinking about how I've seen other people have the complete opposite reaction, especially Hollywood celebrities on Twitter who are mostly millionaires. And that got me thinking about, like, what's the difference between a millionaire Hollywood celebrity and a high-level political candidate? I think one reason it's so easy for these guys on this podcast to say something like that is because it has no impact on how much money they earn. They're just a few dudes sitting around in Canada with like not much of an audience and just like just just speak in their mind. And on the other side of it, when I see someone like uh, Mindy Kaling, for example, on Twitter talking about how amazing it is that there's someone who looks like her in the highest parts of the government, it's easy for her to say that because I think Hollywood is more concerned with tokenism than with comprehensive analysis of politicians and their track records. But I should be clear. I think that both of these things are true at the same time. I think it's true that Biden and Harris are deeply entrenched in the military industrial complex, the way that almost any lifetime politician who has risen as high have been. I also think it's very positive for anyone who's part of, of a minority group, and especially children who are part of a minority group, to have role models who represent them visually, because visually is the most impactful type of representation. This might be my cynicism, but especially to anyone who lives more luxuriously than I do, like anyone with a blue check mark on Twitter, uh, but especially a Hollywood celebrity with one, I'm just like, what's the difference between Mindy Kaling's day on January 19th with Trump as president and January 20th with Biden as president? Her taxes will go up by a few percentage points, which is certainly significant from the average person's perspective, since for someone like her, that amounts to hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. I don't think that changes her day, though. I think that's the only thing, as far as anything that depends on who's in power. She still gets to be a famous, rich celebrity who can get TV shows approved and make development deals with Netflix and all this kind of stuff. So when your bag doesn't get touched at all, it's really easy to act like narrowly avoiding a catastrophe is a huge victory worth cheering about. I mean, on the surface, it definitely is. We lost last time in devastating fashion, and we barely clawed our way out of the hole this time. And I agree that that's nice. Is America still run by special interest groups with blank checks who push their agenda by easily buying politicians every single term? I think so. Would any of these giant corporate conglomerates voice their support for any socially progressive cause if it reduced their bottom line by even 1%? Not a fucking chance. So yeah, if you're rich and influential and aren't a front lines activist already, I think you're probably only cheering about a presidential election because you want to be publicly associated with one side, not because you think one side has finally figured out something to end the cycle of bullshit. Outside that, the only difference you notice is the headlines on your news app on your phone. It'll be less dramatic the way it was with Obama. We might even get back headlines that are about actual policy issues. Now, I don't want to minimize the impact of nicer reading for all of us. It's not nothing. It'll be very nice to open the New York Times for the first time in four years and not have to do the, uh, at this point, reflexive, generic head shake uh, at the daily outrage about Trump. It's nice to not feel like every time you meet someone from another country, you have to sort of like, you know, apologize for the laughing stock that you're associated with because of some clown that you never met. But that's in the specific case of meeting someone who doesn't live in America. Outside of that, I have not noticed a difference at all 
in my day-to-day interactions with strangers in the past four years. You could convincingly say that that's because I live in New York City, which especially in Manhattan where I live is overwhelmingly blue. I think that Manhattan this past election voted around 80 or 85% Biden. When I go further uptown, I feel kind of out of place and I feel like I get looks from people that are like, oh, you're some rich asshole from downtown, which is fine. And I'm sure I would feel similarly if I switched places with them. I wonder how many people in the Bronx voted for Trump definitely more than my neighborhood which is interesting because as far as i can tell there that's basically like voting against your own interests if trump didn't operate within the american political system and got to enact whatever policies he would in his authoritarian fantasies these people i'm talking about who voted for him would be pushed out as fast as possible because trump is more interested in obnoxious real estate developments and extracting whatever he can from pyramid schemes with his name on them than any balancing of economic inequality Yeah, Trump is much more concerned with, like, just putting his name on bullshit that makes him some money than, like, helping anyone. But, of course, that is the Trump magic trick to convince people to vote against their own interest purely with the power of baseless sloganeering. He created an unfortunately convincing straw man by saying that voting blue is voting for a lack of free speech and an overreach of government control, which, as you know, is very ironic because those are the things that he perpetrates himself more than anyone else. So, yeah... The shitty magician got half of the audience to actually believe that the girl in the box had her legs cut off. And the audience, that half of the audience, they didn't feel like asking themselves at any point if he was a magician in the first place. And instead of asking if he was a magician, they just decided to live as if it was all real because that seems to be more fun. I'm sorry, I'm getting distracted. Let me uh, go back to what I was saying before. What's the difference between someone in Mindy Kaling's position and someone in Joe Biden's position? I think in both cases, we're talking about someone who will ultimately take whatever public position is the most likely to help them retain or increase their power. Currently, for both of them, championing social justice aims is the currency that pays for increased social standing with their audience. Let's imagine that 2001 was an election year instead of 2000, and that 9-11 happened two months ago. I think that Joe Biden, like the vast majority of both political parties at the time, would be running on an enthusiastic platform of supporting the wars we were about to get into, and all the focus would be on destroying foreign terrorism with American military might. And like many celebrities at the time, I think Mindy Kaling would would probably also be pushing for a war. It's that classic thing of your motivation is basically whatever your incentive is. In that situation, the emotions of hundreds of millions of people are leaning towards having a war. So the incentive of a presidential candidate or a high-profile Hollywood celebrity becomes leveraging the emotions of your audience. I don't think that Joe Biden or Mindy Kaling are fundamentally ideological people. They ultimately function as figureheads and mouthpieces for whatever the emotional leaning of the moment happens to be. And again, to be clear, I don't have any personal issue with Mindy Kaling, or I guess, well, maybe Joe Biden a little bit. Definitely not Mindy Kaling, though. I actually like everything I've seen her do. She just happens to be in a position that illustrates the point that people in her position are ultimately not loyal to philosophy as much as they're loyal to the whims of the people who put them there in the first place. All this is dependent on which career game you decide to start playing. Mindy Kaling will lose a significant amount, if not all of her power, if she takes a political stance that goes against the majority of Hollywood. That's because she decided to play the traditional Hollywood career game. What I mean by that is coming up the ranks very prim and proper, not stepping on anyone's toes, being very friendly and sidling up to executives and studio heads since you need their approval to get your next project off the ground. That whole kind of thing 
is what most big Hollywood names have done for generations now. Long story short, Mindy Kaling decided to play the traditional Hollywood game of following money and recognition by avoiding controversy. Of course, there are other people in show business in Hollywood who took a very different approach of creating a brand and audience by simply speaking their mind and raising a middle finger to the prim and proper rules that the traditional star actor has to follow. Off the top of my head, Dave Chappelle is a great example, if not the very best example. Joe Rogan, of course, might have a shot at that title after ending up with the world's biggest show with no corporate oversight at any point. But Dave Chappelle has been on this grind for more than 20 years now, I think, of always saying fuck the mainstream bubble of sanctimonious dickheads and always getting bigger and bigger off the honesty, off the disregard for the traditional path. This is a very different game to play. Instead of being like, okay, who do I need to please and never piss off to get where I want to go? You got to be like, I'm not going to say or do a fucking thing I don't enthusiastically feel like saying or doing. And I'll live with whatever rags or riches that gets me. There's a song by one of my favorite bands, While She Sleeps, called Satisfied and Suffering. Some of the lyrics in that song are like, If honesty gets the better of me, I'm satisfied in suffering. If you hate the hand you hold, but you hate to be alone, stop blaming the sadness you gave into. And I think that's a pretty good summary of what happens when you choose one game and not the other. I think the tides are turning, but if we look back at pop culture so far, playing the honesty game has historically given people way less of a chance at gaining traction in the mainstream than playing the polite game. I'm constantly fantasizing about a time when everyone's little kids and everyone's grandparents all understand that news media is about profit, that headlines are designed to manipulate your emotions, that telling the truth is not profitable, and it's a tiny minority of people in the public eye that care about actually delivering you some version of the truth or are willing to even attempt a version of the truth. I keep coming back to this incentives thing. It's like, why do we take people's word at face value before asking ourselves what's in it for them to say one thing instead of saying something else? What's in it for them to tell us what they actually saw and not what just makes them the most money? I think it's because we're used to our parents and our grandparents watching the news every day and taking it seriously and internalizing all that stuff as the truth. So then before you know it, when the authority figures in your life have told you that something's the truth, what tools, what mechanisms do you have before thinking about it yourself to decide what's real or not? But for better or worse, hopefully for better, this current era of slimy politicians and slimy news reporters is turning many of us off to the old way of consuming and believing whatever we're told by the box. And hopefully it won't be long before we can convince a generation or two above us that what they've been watching does not have their best interest at heart that its only goal is to keep them hooked to the fear and the scary headlines, to keep them coming back so that the news company can run more ads so that their next quarter looks good to the shareholders. Just like defense contractors, actually. When I try to tell my grandparents that the news is just fear sales, they laugh at me and think it's funny that I would ever doubt what's in the newspaper or what's on TV or what some news anchor in a suit told them. But I think that's because their perception of the news was formed when they were in their 20s, or if not younger. And it seems like a pattern in human psychology that whatever your beliefs are at age 15 or 20 or 25, a lot of those things get solidified into your personality, into your value system, into your idea of how the world works, into your idea of what people's motivations are and all that stuff. If I was born in 1935, like my grandfather, and then some kid without a job in 2020 told me that news anchors are lying to me, I would probably laugh at him too. 
I saw this Reddit post about how an MSNBC anchor was caught on a hot mic saying that it was a company mandate to exclude Bernie Sanders and Andrew Yang from their coverage from presenting them as serious Democratic Party candidates. I mean, that's not really anything that I didn't suspect before, but it's a sobering reminder that news companies are in a deal with the devil to uphold the power of the current political establishment. Sanders and Yang and Tulsi Gabbard, for that matter, are a clear threat to the establishment. And as the most influential needle movers, the news companies have to choose between keeping their profits and wanting to change the country. Unfortunately, money talks louder when you've invested your whole career into climbing that ladder. But at least we don't have Trump again. Uh, yeah, that's basically all for now. I know at the beginning that I said that I was a day late. I know it's like a couple days late. I recorded that a little while ago and uh, I'm only finishing now. But uh, yeah, thanks for listening. And the next one is going to be on time. See you then.